As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicine they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicine issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said, talking is the best medicine. In this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who've dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that impact millions of people around the world. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by Global Health Impact Project. Welcome to Talk is the Best Medicine. I am your co-host, Diana. And I'm your co-host, Abigail. In today's episode, we are going to be looking to the past to learn some lessons that can be used for today during the COVID-19 pandemic and for future pandemics. Mr. Robert Steinglass is here to discuss his knowledge and experience, starting with smallpox eradication in Ethiopia and Yemen, and then providing technical support to strengthen nationwide immunization programs in low-resource countries throughout the world to control vaccine-preventable diseases. He is also an accomplished author and a highly respected expert in many aspects of the vaccination enterprise. His involvement with vaccination efforts since the late 70s and his decades of experience in nearly 50 countries will be essential in understanding what we can do today and in the future. Mr. Steinglass, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So we've had the pleasure of having Mr. Steinglass on our show before, and so it's so great to have you on again. I know you briefly touched on this last time, but we think it's still a very good story that the listeners deserve to hear. So can you tell us a little bit more about your decision post-college to go volunteer to work in public health in Africa as compared to other options that you had at the time? Sure. Um, maybe just to back up a tiny tiny bit, I, I've always been interested in cross cross-cultural experiences. And my very first memory as a three-year-old visiting my grandparents in a near-in suburb in Toronto was seeing a horse-drawn wagon. This is 1953, a horse-drawn wagon delivering milk in bottles. And it must have been unimaginable and a wonderful spectacle because I've remembered it all this time. I lived on Long Island, you know, fairly comfortably. And in those days, dairy products and eggs were delivered regularly by panel truck to our back door several times a week. Uh, of course, that's changed uh, since then, but I discovered at an early age that things were and could be done differently when one left home. And that was an exciting early lesson for a boy to imagine. So if you just fast forward 40 years later um, with the same dairy theme, I'm drinking fermented mare's milk, kumis, uh, a few hours after arriving in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, in Central Asia in 1992, just a few months after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So on reflection, this seems to be a continuum of sorts from those early Toronto experiences. So I've always been interested in cross-cultural stuff. My dad lived in what he called Formosa, later Taiwan in 1928. As a 20 year old, 
uh, working for his company. And he served in World War II in Panama at the canal. So I, I grew up with, you know, experiences and stories from abroad. Um, a photograph of my um, grandfather as, a, as an 18 year old who won an award with marksmanship. Uh, he has a medal on his chest. He won that award in the Russo-Japanese War. Um, so these kind of things sort of excited my imagination. Um, as to my decision to go to abroad in public health, I mean, I was just determined to hop off the conveyor belt of school and work. And I imagined that public health would be a, an opportunity to really have a great cross-cultural overseas adventure, first of all, and secondly, to contribute in public health to something that was good. So I chose Ethiopia from a long list of possible Peace Corps countries um, because I wanted the most remote country uh, that I could think of and one that owed as little as possible to my own Western culture and Western heritage and my, and my upbringing. I basically wanted to escape my cocoon and my comfort zone and test myself and hopefully prove myself with something that was totally alien. And I just mentioned here, by the way, that um, 14 former Peace Corps volunteers like myself wrote a book recently on the transformative adventures of our experience. Uh, in, it has an introduction by D.A. Henderson, who was an excellent leader, manager, and motivator. He, he led up the smallpox eradication program. So that book is available on Amazon. It's called Eradicating Smallpox in Ethiopia, Peace Corps Volunteers Accounts of Their Adventures, Challenges, and Achievements. And it just won the Peace Corps Writers Award for the best book about Peace Corps experience. And my own chapter focused on what a transformative experience it was to eradicate smallpox in the midst of a massive famine that was going on at the same time. And also the epic unraveling of Emperor Haile Selassie's feudal regime. Wow, that's incredibly fascinating to hear, um, especially for a room full of college students, I think. So can you tell us a little bit more about that experience, almost give the readers a sneak peek into what your chapter is about, starting from your early days in Ethiopia? What was your role in Ethiopia and what did those duties entail? And can you just tell us a little bit more about how you traveled in rural Ethiopia to get this project done? Right. Um, well, e Ethiopia at the time and still, but particularly at the time was extremely remote, very few roads, a very mountainous country called the rooftop of Africa. And uh, I worked in both high mountainous areas up to 10,000 feet and I also worked 400 feet below sea level. Um, in an area where the sea had retreated in what's called the Donical Desert, the world's most, most the world's hottest inhabited place. Um, so I, I did everything. I walked, mostly walked. I used mules when mules were available. Um, I even hitchhiked a ride on Luftwaffe helicopters who were doing famine surveillance. So, you know, you had to be resilient and innovative in the way you moved around. Basically, I was a surveillance and containment officer. My uh, job was to search for smallpox and follow rumors. And if I found cases, then to do what was called ring vaccination around those cases in the area to contain them. And I should just add here that um, we weren't striving to vaccinate with high coverage anywhere in the country uh, to achieve so-called herd immunity. The effort was really uh, focused on surveillance and then vaccinating around cases that were found. Um, and I should add here that my smallpox experience 
in those early days also taught me some lasting lessons for my career in public health, which is the limitations of short-term single disease initiatives to develop strong routine health and immunization systems. Uh, and this may come up later, but you know, a, a disease approach is different from a long-term developmental approach. Wow, that is honestly incredible, especially um, being in such a remote location and taking on such a big task. But um, besides having no roads and needing to improvise, what are the most common barriers that vaccination programs face today? And can you think of any ways that these barriers can be overcome? Right. Well, um, staff, you know, in those days in smallpox, there was really not much competition in what people were trying to achieve in public health. Smallpox was really almost the first major public health initiative like that in many low resourced countries. Nowadays, staff are trying to do a lot more, even within the immunization space. I and mean, we've got lots of new vaccines to introduce. Um, there's measles elimination, polio eradication, tetanus elimination. There's improving disease surveillance, improving laboratory capacity, and so much more. So there's just so much more that we want to do. And then unfortunately, the barrier is there's not a lot of staff, local staff, to do it in many cases. There's not been enough uh, balanced investment to support those local staff. And some key components of a coherent immunization system don't receive enough attention, such as, for example, supply chain or community partnerships with civil society. So countries and their partners, I feel, need to invest a lot more in strengthening routine immunization services as an integral part of the overall health system. And I suspect we'll talk more about that in later questions. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about what you would envision those investments to look like? So we know that money, for example, will always be a helpful factor in solving some of these issues. Um, but what ways can money be used to assist people on the ground? Um, and are there broad areas, are there areas in the broad vaccination enterprise and in vaccine supply chains more specifically that can be made more cost effective? Right. Well, I mean, money is of course essential. Um, salaries, staff salaries need to be paid. Um, the budget must be adequate and, and frankly, it must be released in a timely way. This is often not the case. Oftentimes budgets are released late. Operational costs, recurrent costs, in other words, must be covered so that um, services are available and people therefore are confident and can predict that when they take the trouble to walk or travel over great distances to the vaccination site, that in fact, health staff will be there with all the vaccines that are needed. Um, so that's one of the really big challenges. And I should say that also, I mean, public health staff in the United States too are often under-supported and underappreciated. And we've learned that, you know, over and over again with COVID. So, you know, in general, curative care attracts investments more than public health, even though, of course, we all are familiar with the adage that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, so, um, and maybe just a word about supply chains since you included that in your question. Um, supply chains have received decades of inadequate attention, but for fortunately that's started to change in the past five years or so with uh, more support, more finance, better tools to give uh, what was always missing, which was the end-to-end -end visibility on where the vaccines were in what quantities and with what expiry dates. And that, that's of course needed at every level to better forecast 
and re vaccine requirements and to supply the vaccine. There's also been improvements in remote temperature monitoring and alarms to help ensure that the right storage conditions are being maintained. Um, and that's of course essential, especially as the value of the vaccines themselves have increased probably tenfold compared to when I first started in immunization programs. So you gotta make sure those vaccines are being held uh, in a proper way so they're potent and effective. But still, more investment is needed to strengthen the skills of the workforce. And you know, there's this misunderstanding that cold chain somehow is just equipment, but in fact, it's the soft side of things that's so important, which is having knowledgeable people um, with good policies, knowing how to do their jobs, if you want to um, make sure the vaccines retain their potency. And it's not just um, supply chain, more investment is needed to improve the skills of the, ins of the um, existing workforce in all areas of the immunization enterprise, but also we don't do a good job of improving pre-service education related to vaccination services. So that's needed and money is needed for better program management, improving data collection and data use, including lo at local levels, um, improving surveillance, supervision, laboratories, um, better communications, and better partnership with communities. There's, there's a lot of things that, are, that need to be improved. And I should add that there have been some positive experiences in um, better advocating with local non-health actors. I'm talking here like the politicians, the local governors, because that's where the finance for operational costs needs to come from. They're the ones who need to better understand their programs so that they release their local funds to support the services. And a lot more needs to be done in that area, especially if we're going to reduce dependency on external support. Uh, the external support is fickle. It can't be relied on as a permanent solution. And, and one of the problems is that the health sector alone can't do it alone. Um, but unfortunately, the health sector is often hesitant to engage uh, with the um, um, non-governmental actors like civil society, um, professional associations, business groups, et cetera, and also to engage with the other, other governmental sectors beyond health, like education, community development, et cetera, since there are always cross-cutting issues that have to be resolved if you're gonna have an efficient and effective vaccination service. And that's true in the United States too. And that has become glaringly obvious with COVID. Yeah, so you definitely touched upon boots on the ground and how it's so important to assist them. But could you elaborate more on some other factors that need to be considered as an immunization team leader, things such as drug production, distribution, and things like that, and how they can be used to improve access to medicine? Right, um, well, this is going to be a long response because that's a Im really important question. We tend to think the job is done when we, when people have access, when health workers have access to stuff. Um, and as I mentioned in my last podcast with you a year ago, access to medicines or vaccines isn't enough. Uh, and the focus on access, an overwhelming focus on access often undervalues all the other bits that have to be put in place and supported for the effect that we want. So um, beyond the simplistic formulation that calls for better so-called access to vaccines or medicines, we also have to ask other questions uh, about the vaccination services themselves that are required. So for example, as I mentioned in my last podcast, are the vaccination services available? 
our health workers even present with adequate vaccine supplies? Are the vaccine, vaccine, vaccination services, not just vaccines, but the services, are they accessible? Um, can parents access those services or are there barriers, cultural, social, linguistic, economic, you name it, transport, geographical obstacles that have to be thought about and overcome? So again, beyond the access to vaccines, are the services affable? Are the mothers um, chastised if they bring their children late or forgot to bring their vaccination cards? Are the vaccination services acceptable to parents? Um, are they offered at convenient times? We see this with COVID in the United States. Uh, are the services offered at convenient times? Um, are the vaccinations services affordable? Um, do the health workers expect this free service to be paid with under-the-counter payments? Um, can, can parents afford to forego a day's work to reach the vaccination site and then only to find that the vaccination worker maybe is not present or certain vaccines aren't in stock? So uh, all of these issues about, uh, you know, are we communicating with parents well enough that they need to return for their subsequent doses, um, et cetera. So these are comments that are related to vaccines and vaccination, but many of those comments apply also to any essential medicine that your class is interested in. So you have to think beyond just the, the commodity or the stuff. And we've seen with COVID this overwhelming focus um, in immunization programs in general, but with COVID as well, we've seen this focus so much on the discovery and the development and the manufacture and the supply and the financing and so-called deployment of vaccines. But it's taken a long time, but we're finally arriving at the point where it's becoming clear that there's been insufficient attention on what it actually takes to get those populations vaccinated, so-called shots in arms. And I've been saying for decades, I probably coined the expression that vaccines work that, sorry, that vaccines don't deliver themselves. And people are starting to say that. And also that vaccines work when vaccination works. Uh, so you gotta focus on not just the stuff, not just the commodity or the product, but the devil's in the details. The processes must be there to make the vaccination work. And um, beyond again, access, um, the, the leaders um, that you mentioned, they must figure out how people are to be reached with potent vaccines in a timely, safe and affordable way before exposure to disease. And the services have to be of good quality so that the people will want to return to complete all their doses. So the leaders have a lot to think about. Uh, they have to figure out how to do that, how to ensure that there are capable health workers at all levels, that those health workers are supported to plan, manage, monitor, and deliver uh, a timely, safe, effective, efficient vaccinations of good quality with all of the scheduled vaccines, not just one that's the focus of a disease campaign like polio or measles. And, and they also have to figure out how to ensure that the caretakers value immunization and that the caretakers can predict predictably expect to receive uh, timely age and those specific vaccines that they perceive to be of good quality when they demand and present with their children and themselves. And that's a challenge, that's a development challenge. It's not just a disease control challenge. And it's a systems challenge to build all of these capacities and overcome ob obstacles. So that's what leaders have to think about. They have to think about a marathon and not just perhaps a donor financed sprint to an artificial finish line that is constructed because of a donor interest. Um, so unfortunately, 
we do tend in the donor community to, to be addicted to these instant coverage improvements through one-off one mass campaigns. And that, of course, plays into this short-term cycle of political interests, but the effect generally won't last very long unless we realize that strong and steady is what's required to win the race. And I'll just give you a concrete example of what leaders need to be looking at beyond access to vaccines. And I'll use as a reference, new vaccine introduction, um, which is a great thing uh, to have new vaccines against uh, serious life-threatening diseases. Leaders need to think which new vaccines to introduce. They may already have decided they're going to introduce a rotavirus vaccine or a, 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 a pneumococcal vaccine or a, a vaccine against the human papillomavirus, which you know, can prevent cancer. They may have already decided that they're gonna introduce a new vaccine, but which product specifically should they introduce? Because there are many, different, many differences between the vaccine products across the different manufacturers to choose from to prevent the very same disease. And of course, that's the same issue with COVID. There are so many different vaccines with different properties that need to be figured out in terms of which ones are going to work in which areas of the country. So the good thing is that new vaccine introduction has gen generated a lot of interest um, and a lot of investment and enthusiasm, but leaders need to think about some of these more um, uh, programmatic issues to figure out which vaccine products to introduce. So to continue with this, this example, um, the decision makers generally at global level and at regional level and at global institutions, and maybe at national level, they tend to think in terms of, well, um, you know, these are, before we introduce the vaccine, let's decide, is this a, a disease that has a lot of burden? Is the vaccine efficacious and effective, safe? What is the reactogenicity of the vaccine? Does it fit within the existing schedule? Healthcare cost savings, you know, outbreak potential, uh, productivity gains. These are sort of high level issues that leaders think about. But what informed decision makers also increasingly need to think about are the programmatic characteristics of those competing vaccine products. What is their various heat stability profiles, the storage temperatures, the number of doses in a vial, the number of doses that are needed to complete a course of vaccination, the wastage rate, you know, how much volume in the cold chain does, do these vaccines require? In other words, how are they, are they packaged? Um, how are we gonna dispose of the waste? Um, how acceptable by health staff will it be to give multiple injections of the vaccine on the same day? And how willing are our mothers to accept more than one injection on the same day? Uh, the volume of the dose administered varies as well by some product across products. So in other words, because you are an access to medicines class, I just wanted to emphasize that it's not enough to only look at the products, but also you must consider the system within which those products are going to have to be fitted. So to that end, you discussed two schools of thought for reducing disease characterized as horizontal versus vertical approaches, um, kind of tying into what you were just talking about. Can you quickly explain what it means to have either a horizontal or vertical approach to immunization? Okay. Um, well, here's here, I can give you a good example uh, here uh, that illustrates uh, that point um, and why I feel that routine immunization doesn't get 
distinguished enough and get enough attention to why, in fact, it is wobbly and needs um, more effort and more support. Just to give you an example of um, um, what we have to pay attention to um, and what I mean by sort of a um, horizontal versus a vertical approach. So a horizontal approach um, would be, let's say, deciding to invest in health systems broadly and assuming that if you invest sufficiently in the health systems, all boats are going to all boats will rise, including immunization, and that's a very long-term approach. Um, a much nearer-term, short-term approach is investing in uh, single disease or uh, disease mass campaign approaches, which might get you somewhere fast, but might not take you very far, and might not be sustainable in the end. So I'll give you um, an example. Um, just between, let's say, a polio eradication and a routine immunization approach, um, which might help explain what I what I mean. And what I'm advocating is something in the middle, which is strengthening routine immunization. Yes, to do the um, disease control approaches by all means. Do the broader health sy health systems approaches by all means. But make sh making sure that both approaches are held accountable to improve routine immunization systems as a part of that um, overall health system. So I'll just give you an example, um, you know, between polio eradication and routine immunization. So polio focuses on one disease. Routine immunization focuses on all the vaccine preventable diseases. Polio is usually extremely well financed, often externally, whereas routine immunization is usually poorly financed from any source. Uh, the timeframes are different. Uh, polio has a time-limited goal to achieve eradication. Routine aims to increase incrementally um, with durable gains, uh, the coverage, and to improve the system. And regarding service delivery, polio relies upon episodic short campaigns with the frequency dictated by the epidemiology of one disease, polio. And it reaches across broad age, age ranges, much broader than the routine program. And it aims to achieve success because it's gonna bypass the health system with all of the intrinsic barriers in the health system. Whereas the routine program, if it's situated within the health system, tries to reach all of the infants as soon as they become eligible for each vaccine and tries to work through the health system, not doing end runs. And then polio eradication has a sort of a top-down command and control structure with ownership basically mandated at each successively lower level. Uh, whereas the routine program aims to build ownership from the bottom up, usually through some sort of an existing decentralized health structure. And then planning, uh, high level planning with polio uh, based on formulas usually, whereas with routine programs, it's some a lot of local autonomy and flexibility to come up with customized solutions. The logistics are different. Polio eradication needs a fast chain. They, they may provide some refrigerators and maybe some fuel enough just for the campaign, but without, um, and they pre-position pre pre some of the supply. But the routine program requires a slow chain, requiring skills for forecasting management, temperature monitoring, avoiding freezing, et cetera, because that cold chain has to be there every day of the, of the, of the year because kids are eligible every day, unlike with polio campaigns. Um, and then with community, the, the polio approach is usually short-term, money, a lot of money for social mobilization externally financed with volunteers 
armies of well-funded volunteers going to door to door. The routine program doesn't have that. They must create locally affordable community partnerships for the long term um, for a service that's continued routine. And then uh, just two more um, with recording. Um, the polio doesn't use, they just use tally sheets because all everyone's eligible for supplementary doses. Nobody needs to keep track as with the routine program in an age and dose specific way of who's already been vaccinated and what additional doses they might require. So that's just a few examples. Um, uh, and the investment strategy is different. Um, the sustainability is, is of the two approaches is, is very different. So you can see that a lot of the so-called best practices of a single disease approach like polio are just not easily transferable. One has a lot of money, a near-term goal, so it's impatient, it bypasses the system. The other is poorly resourced, needs to come up with steady, affordable, long-term improvements by working through uh, the system. So what that means nowadays is that the polio program has finally, belatedly, begin to realize that they're gonna need a reorientation. They're gonna need to downscale and increase reliance uh, on local solutions. They're gonna have to morph from a highly resourced external army taking shortcuts to a more affordable approach um, through the health system, including building up the routine immunization program, which is a claim that polio has always made. That they always say that they're doing that, but in reality, they don't do that. Their focus is different, as I've mentioned. So the donors need to hold these eradication and single disease initiatives more accountable than in the past, especially when the initiatives claim that there are all these secondary benefits, such as strengthening routine immunization. Your middle ground approach is very refreshing between these two schools of thoughts, the horizontal and vertical, as you call them. But I did want to go back and touch upon your career since you've made so many accomplishments and you've had so much experience. Um, you worked during the USSR while it was dissolving. So how did this gap in power and the creation of new states affect your work? And can you tell us a little bit about some difficulties that you faced during this transitional period? Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, the work in the former Soviet Union, known as the newly independent states now, um, as a collective, uh, um, was probably one of the high po highest points in my career because it required me to think. I couldn't just say, well, this is what WHO recommends. If I said that, the people in these countries would laugh at me and say, don't tell me what WHO recommends. We tell WHO what to recommend. We want to know the reasoning behind your suggestions. So I was there two months after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There were no other uh, foreigners um, uh, running around these countries. I was the first American that anybody I met had ever met. Um, and uh, WHO and UNICEF were still not present. The US government was, was barely there. They just opened up their embassies in hotels in some of these countries the week before I arrived. So it was a very um, um, challenging time in many ways because nobody could predict what the future was going to bring. So my job was to advise the US government on, on what, if anything, they should do to support technically or financially these um, Central Asian republics uh, initially. Eventually, I worked in most of the republic, uh, former republics, now countries. What, if anything, the US government should do to support them? Because one of the things that happens when uh, things collapse is uh, um, communicable diseases come back with a vengeance. And these countries had pretty good vaccination programs and had controlled 
uh, vaccine preventable disease to a quite a high level. Their coverage was much better than the coverage in the United States. I had to explain why I was there in the first place if our coverage in the United States was as low as it was. But it was clear to me that they needed vaccines for sure, and the U.S. government could help, but they needed more than just vaccines. So they had very strong programs, as I said, but the fundamental underpinnings had suddenly changed. The, the assumptions that their system were based on had suddenly changed. So our role was to help them, support them to examine in this new world that they were in, how their responses might need to change uh, given the altered situation. Um, so for just the one example, um, Aeroflot, the, um, you know, so the Soviet Union's uh, fleet of airplanes had been grounded um, and fuel was hard to get. Um, in the past, the countries were accustomed when they noticed they needed some more vaccine, they'd pick up the phone, call up the, the manufacturer, and uh, an air, on the next Aeroflot, uh, flight, which were frequent, even down to district levels, there were airports and flights, they would get whatever vaccines they might need. Well, suddenly that changed. The Aeroflot fleet was grounded. Uh, people at the higher level in the, these new countries at all levels needed to understand what a vaccine supply chain and cold chain um, consisted of. Um, and so uh, a lot of adjustments needed to be made. And also they had very long lists of imagined contraindications um, about why kids shouldn't be vaccinated. So those lists needed to be clarified, simplified, and shortened. And for that, they needed evidence. They wanted to know what other countries, England, France, the US did. Um, and they also had extremely heavy vaccination schedules, um, you know, using the same dose again and again, overdosing the kids really, but possibly sensibly doing that because of such insufficient attention to the cold chain. The vaccines um, were, sent in cardboard boxes, no ice across, you know, 11 time zones or more time zones in the height of winter and the height of heat. It's a very extreme climatic area in the former Soviet Union. So there, were, there was a lot of inattention to what might be called low science, which suddenly needed to be attended to with um, these vaccines from the West that were going to start coming in to them to so they could figure out how to use the vaccines appropriately, how to store them properly, how to reduce the contraindications and, you know, regain and not lose the amazing achievements that they had managed up until then. Wow. I can't imagine. Like you said, it took a lot of thinking, but I, I can't imagine how challenging that must have been. And I'm sure you provided a lot of good support to them. My parents are actually in the former Soviet Union. So I imagine oh, yeah. it might have affected their lives somehow as well. well but where, 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 if you don't mind, where, where are they from or where were they from? Uh, well, now it's St. Petersburg. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, we got to work in Russia on diphtheria control. That Russia had, in fact, the former Soviet Union had the worst diphtheria epidemic since World War II, starting in about 1992. So we were very involved with diphtheria control as well. So like I said, it was just the most exciting time in my career. I, I really just, I can't imagine what that must have been like, but I'm happy you have a positive um, view on that time. Um, and so moving into the next question, there is a saying that a medicine is not effective if people are unwilling to take it, right? So you briefly mentioned the importance of consultation and education of families so they are comfortable and know when and where to get vaccinations. So can you go into some techniques that are effective in getting families comfortable with taking vaccines? 
Yeah. So um, this is a very interesting question because there's so much discussion about vaccine hesitancy, vaccine resistance, that COVID has sort of, um, 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 you know, made apparent. Um, my own experience overseas is that people overseas know these diseases. They fear the diseases, they recognize the diseases, and they want to prevent the diseases. So while um, vaccine resistance, vaccine hesitancy can have many different um, determinants, there's many different reasons. Some people are against a particular vaccine. They might be against all vaccines. They might mistrust the government. They might mistrust the pharmaceutical companies, whatever. There's a lot of focus and attention on that in the United States. But overseas, for the most part, the vast majority of people want to be vaccinated. They realize that the vac vaccination is valuable, just like we have always va realized it in this country. And um, until COVID has sort of, um, like I said, um, shown that a lot of people aren't that enthusiastic about vaccinations and vaccines. So I think generally uh, there's too much emphasis on so-called vaccine hesitancy. There are a lot of barriers that need to be overcome uh, in this country as well uh, to explain why people don't get vaccinated. Of course, there's always a core of people who will refuse for whatever, for whatever reason. And it's alarming, very alarming in the West, how that is increasing. But um, like I say, for the most part, people in Africa and Asia want these services. Um, now, if there's a communications component, of course, but I think when you overly describe the problem with low vaccination coverage overseas as one of hesitancy, unfortunately, too often, the imagined solution is, oh, well, we just need to communicate better. We just need to give these people better information. And of course, that's always part of it. But I think um, if vaccination services themselves are made more convenient, and this is true in the United States as well, and made more predictably available, um, if we don't you know, frustrate mothers who come with their children uh, by turning them away, telling them, oh, sorry, you know, the health worker isn't here or the, that vaccine isn't here today or whatever. You know, if we make the service more, uh, more of a quality service, they will be more satisfied with that service and they'll return to complete the dose doses. There are areas of every one of these countries that are hard to access, hard to reach. And so, um, money is needed and a lot of good thinking is needed to figure out how to deliver those services to those um, more inaccessible, underserved areas. And that, again, is true in the United States as well. I live in a rural area outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and there are, quote unquote, shut-ins, people who just can't get out living up in some of these mountain hollows. And um, it's, you can't just assume that they're going to be able easily to come and access services. So, yes, there is some vaccine resistance, but um, overall, the, um, it's not as big a problem overseas. And if we work on improving the service, uh, we're going to do a, a lot to improve coverage and reduce uh, disease incidence. Thank you so much on your insight for um, improving just the overall quality of services to gain trust and to be able to get people more willing to get these vaccines. But at this point, we'd like to ask some student questions that were submitted beforehand, and we'll try to get through as many as possible. Okay. So, do you think that now parents will be reluctant to provide their children with routine immunizations due to fear of the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I think that is a great question. And it's a question I really worry about, um, in particularly the United States and other Western countries. Like I said in, in a moment ago, 
Um, you know, vaccination has to some extent become a victim of its own success um, in countries in the West. You know, people don't see polio anymore. People don't see measles very often or diphtheria. Um, but it's, it was there not long ago in our country as well. Um, so I am afraid that um, people are, are going to um, fight that battle and say, well, why are we mandating any of these vaccines for kids to attend schools? Well, you know, it's sort of, I think, backwards thinking. The reason that measles incidence is low and that polio has disappeared is because we maintain high immunization coverage with each successive cohort of children. And while it's best to immunize kids early in life, even before they start attending school, it's at primary school at when kids suddenly start to matriculate where we have access to them. And we can see as a whole, cohort by cohort, year after year, if kids are um, helping to maintain population immunity, because otherwise there's a chance that when they grow up later, they will be exposed to some diseases. May they, they may get exposed to um, rubella, for example, during a pregnancy later on. Um, and they may, you know, develop, um, you know, a, a, a cervical cancer uh, later in life as a result, when they could have been immunized against uh, human papillomavirus. Uh, now, when they were checked to see whether they were immunized or not uh, within school. And those are usually girls and boys in the United States um, who are immunized um, before the sexual activity begins. So, so yes, there are real concerns that I have and others have that this current concern about COVID and COVID mandates will somehow you know, metastasize and affect other vaccines and other vaccinations. So zooming out on that question a little bit, we were interested in hearing how and if you think loud anti-vaccine messages affect routine immunization investment and or administration. Um, I think um, those loud voices in the United States and elsewhere have begun to spook practitioners. Um, and certainly to make public health practitioners in local health departments nervous. And I think that's a shame. I mean, we don't appreciate the work that our public health um, you know, um, staff do. Uh, they do a lot of things that the private sector doesn't have much interest in doing. Tuberculosis, contact tracing, my goodness, smallpox, would never have been eradicated if it was left to the private sector, for example. So the public sector is really important. And I think the public sector, especially at the local health departments um, around the country are nervous because in some areas where they are working, uh, there has been a lot of um, mistrust and distrust, in some cases fomented by political leaders. And, and I'm not, I don't believe for a minute that public health can be a pristine, discipline that doesn't need to consider politics. It must consider politics. It must act, uh, it must operate within a political environment. But we need to get the leaders to be better advocates for public health. And I like to say that good health is good politics. Um, but a lot of our public, our um, political um, leaders, our political class don't recognize that so much. So I do fear that um, uh, there will be setbacks um, at the um, 
in the public health departments and in the private practitioners with the private practitioners, I think um, there needs to be much better counseling of parents who might be resistant. They might have questions. They might have legitimate questions. I'm not saying that um, questions shouldn't be asked. They should be asked and they should be answered. Um, our method of reimbursing practitioners doesn't always allow for sufficient time to be given for them to, to provide the counseling that's necessary, unfortunately. Yeah, so this next question kind of relates a little bit to the private sector. So with private companies making money from COVID-19 vaccines, how influential will the private sector be going forward to the success of routine immunization? Well, you know, private companies have always made money on vaccination. Um, I think what COVID has done is it has um, shined a spotlight on big, so-called big pharma. Um, and I, I don't think that's unhealthy. I think there are a lot of legitimate questions that can be asked about how policies are made, whether the you know big pharma has too much influence in the decision in the political decision making process. I think those are legitimate questions that always need to be asked. Um, there are pharmaceutical companies in the developing world. In um, there's in fact a network called the Developing Country Vaccine Manufacturers Network, and um, they're doing a great job. Um, and in some cases, making vaccines available very much more cheaply. Um, good quality vaccines. In fact, I think 80 or 90% of the measles vaccine used in the world uh, that's um, uh, supplied by UNICEF comes from uh, uh, vaccine manufacturers in India, which is you know, considered the pharmaceutical sort of um, 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 you know, um, stronghouse really of the world. Um, so, I, but I do think that pharmaceutical companies um, need to make money that they have shareholders that you know, invest and they need to make money, they need to invest in innovations and blah, blah, blah. But I think the public system, the government needs to hold the pharmaceutical companies to account to make sure that um, profits are reasonable and that during a pandemic, um, uh, other decisions are made to make sure that vaccines are made more widely available um, without, price gouging, for example. And, and even more importantly, as I alluded to earlier, um, interceding with the manufacturers earlier would be a good idea to make sure that they understand the value of some of those programmatic downstream issues that I mentioned earlier, but even such things as how to package the vaccine and how to present the vaccine uh, in numbers of doses per vial, et cetera, which have a big effect on how well those vaccines can be used in the field. The routine immunization as a public health emergency to get it the attention it needs. So, so sorry, you're gonna to have to repeat that question because you, you, um, I missed you at the very beginning of it. Sorry, I was saying, do you think it's time to frame the routine immunization as a public health emergency to get it the attention it needs? Um, no, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I, I think, um, um. The routine immunization program, because as I mentioned earlier, it's really a longer term health development challenge that needs to be addressed. I think it's wrong to um, characterize it as an emergency uh, because that then generates all sorts of emergency kinds of responses that uh, are not necessarily compatible with developing that routine immunization service as an integral part of the health system that's gonna be sustained 
after the fleeting and fickle interest of donors um, um, falls away because you know it's hard to maintain an emergency status for a long time. And yes, it might attract some donor uh, funds in the short term, and those donor funds might even be um, invested in ways that are not compatible with building a long-term service. It might be, uh, you know, uh, they might be um, focused those those funds on just, for example, improving uh, immunization coverage. Well, that's great. What about the kids who are born the day after the campaigns are finished? So, so the I think it would be a very big mistake to characterize it as an emergency, but we have to find the words to characterize it as being extremely important so that um, ministries of health invest their own funds uh, when necessary. I mean, which is all the time, but the, that the Ministry of Health, ministries of health invest their own funds to strengthen their routine immunization services. And when and if they need additional support, financial or technical, they have access to it from abroad. Okay, so can you elaborate a little bit more on how we can help improve the public view and attention level of RI, since you think that um, framing it as a public health emergency wouldn't be the best idea? Well, so this is an interesting question because um, Bill Fage, who was the head of CDC under President Carter and is a friend, and is a giant in public health. I mean, literally, he's a giant. He's about six foot seven, but he's just an amazing person. One of the people who sort of discovered in Nigeria that um, um, that you didn't need to immunize an entire population against smallpox to uh, er- eliminate the disease in that country, that you could do better quality surveillance. He's sort of one of the masterminds, along with D.A. Henderson, uh, of that approach. Um, so he wrote a book um, some years ago. It's called... Um, Fears of the rich, needs of the poor, um, and I, it was—it's a brilliant um, title uh, because it explains why we in the West tend to be oblivious to the diseases that ravage the global South. Uh, and it's not until an infected person, for example, with Ebola, when an American came back in 2014 from uh, West Africa, suddenly we paid attention to Ebola. Um, there's lots of things like that we don't pay attention to, and in fact. CDC itself, it, one of its missions is to protect the homeland, to keep the homeland safe. So we, we basically look to those diseases that you know, affect us in the West, and we don't, which doesn't always align well with what the countries themselves see as their own priority. Perfect example is tetanus, which is one of my areas of specialty. So although it's a big problem, although huge, great um, uh, success has been done to reduce uh, it's, it's incidents. It used to kill about a million babies a year overseas, right after childbirth, because of unclean cutting of the umbilical cord. And now it's down to about fifty thousand a year. Huge um, uh, improvement. But in the West, we're never going to be very interested in investing in tetanus prevention overseas because tetanus is not something that you know um, activates our imagination here in the United States, so we're gonna have a hard time mobilizing funds. So I think we have to do a better job um, in the United States and in the West to make it clear um, just how much burden with in terms of mortality, long-term disability and morbidity, these vaccine preventable diseases cause, and that it makes good sense 
for the West to invest in routine immunization. So we have one last question from the audience here before we wrap up. So in 2013, you wrote an article discussing the importance of routine immunization, and you've certainly discussed the importance of that throughout this episode. Um, But since then, have there been significant improvements in the strengthening of routine immunizations um, and what areas are still needing an improvement? Yes, so there's there's been huge improvement, but there's also been um, dropping back. COVID has really disrupted uh, immunization programs in many countries. Um, so there have been a lot of improvements. Um, uh, to give the polio eradication program its fair due, they've done a good job of improving laboratories around the world. Um, they've done a um, you know decent job of trying to improve surveillance. In many in many cases, it's surveillance of just acute flaccid paralysis relative to polio, in other words, maybe not a broad surveillance system, uh, and that is still needed. Um, there's There've been improvements uh, in many areas. After all, um, the global community went from about 5% vaccination coverage when the program began in 1978 to about 85% right before COVID. So it's a huge achievement. Um, but some of the areas that can need to have continued investment are engaging civil society, doing a better job of partnering with partnering with communities, um, improving the supply chain, um, and just the boring job of making sure that the health staff are trained, supported, supportively supervised uh, as well um, going forward. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Steinglass, but unfortunately we are running out of time. So before we go, we'd like for you to give us a closing message or just a few words that you'd like to leave the audience with. Is there anything that you would like the audience to know? Okay. um, Well, obviously public health and preventive medicine are rewarding areas for students um, in this course and others to engage in. And it's also, as I hope I made clear, extremely exciting and and, and, an adventurous career to enter and and very worthwhile and very satisfying. Um, I would say that there are many perspectives and disciplines that are required um, to uh, achieve a good vaccination outcome. It's not just epidemiology. It's not just immunology. Um, uh, It's Um, More than that, it's logistics and IT and communications and behavior change and a lot of other disciplines. It's a big tent that we need a lot of people involved in um, and that we must uh, focus more on what I would call processes, uh, not just the access to the vaccines, but actually how to make sure that vaccination works by getting that shot into the arm. And I would encourage people to get out from behind their desk, as John le Carre said, a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world and see what the needs are and talk to people in the field. And maybe my last point is just the need to sustain political and popular interest in vaccination since the job is never done. Children are born every day. Thank you for your insightful words. I hope that the audience has internalized at least some of them. And thank you again for joining us today, Robert Steinglass. It was a pleasure to have you. We'd like to thank the audience for joining us today. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors. 
This podcast series is part of an Epidemic Ethics WHO initiative, which has been supported by FCDO slash Welcome Grant 214711 slash Z slash 18 slash Z. We'd also like to thank Professor Nicole Hassoud for her executive production, Dr. Ryan Woltz for writing and production, along with interns Abigail Vidrin, writer and co-host, Diana Detty, writer and co-host, Ariana Rodriguez as assistant producer, Elizabeth Van Tassel, assistant producer, and Noah Mizrahi, assistant producer. I'm your co-host, Abigail Vidrin. And I'm your co-host, Diana Deddy. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of our content or explore the exciting work being done by our parent organization, the Global Health Impact Project, you can check out our website at global-health-impact.org new in the description below. The Global Health Impact Project hopes to continue to support efforts like this podcast to provide information about and advocate for access to essential medicines. Also follow the Global Health Impact Project's social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, don't forget... Talking is the best medicine.